Good morning. You've made it through 11 weeks. Well done. I hope you're walking in a manner worthy of your calling. That's what we've been uh, discussing over some time now. And it's uh, my privilege to bring you just a message of encouragement today. That's my goal this morning is just to encourage you here at Monty in your walk of faith. It's interesting, it's interesting, isn't it? Over uh, the past week within our culture, within our city, there's been one anthem that you've been hearing. It's all about the, the race that stops the nation. I still can't get over that particular mantra. The race that stops the nation? Why do we have a public holiday for a horse race? I don't get it. Why is there such worldwide interest in this particular race? And um, why is it that the race is probably more about fashion, fascinators, fine suits and celebrities than the actual horse race? Well, it truly is a race that stops the nation and it in many ways shows the heart of our culture, doesn't it? But we stop and we watch. Look, I'm a novice to horse racing, I've got to say. I thought horses were only used on the farm. And so I thought I'd do a little bit of research about horse racing, especially about the Melbourne Cup, and what makes uh, that so significant. Well, firstly, it's a long race, evidently. It's a long race. It's for stayers. It's over two miles or 3.2 kilometres. And it's for the horse that runs well over a long distance. It's sort of the horsey equivalent of a marathon. It's evidently the richest uh, two-mile horse race in the world, not just here in Australia, but in the world. And it's a handicap race, so I, I sort of don't understand that either. I think they have different weights and they handicap it out and all the rest, so someone might be able to tell me about that later. But the interesting fact uh, that came through was it costs the owner $50,000 to get the horse in the race. Evidently it starts off with about uh, three to four hundred horses that say we'd like to race, be one of the 24 that race. And by the time you get to the final 24, it costs you 50 grand. The prize money this year was $7.2 million. And approximately 90,000 people go to the event and then the rest of us watch it on telly. 5.6 million people tune in to watch this horse race. So some of you here do that. <laughs> and that's okay. That's okay. Julie and I watched it because we wanted to see whether it was going to be a dolphin swimming or a horse because it was pretty wet, wasn't it, Tuesday morning? Uh, so there you go. That's about the, uh, the race that stops the nation. This morning I want to talk about a far more important race. I want to talk about the race that the Christian runs. For the past 10 weeks, we have considered together what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, i.e., how do we walk as followers of Christ? What is required? What does Scripture tell us about the way we respond to those around about us and the way we personally walk? So we're moving from the walking metaphor today to the racing metaphor. 
And we're going to be discussing what it means to run the race of endurance. Or run the race with endurance. And you know what? This race, there is no entrance fee. It is by God's gift of grace. Through Christ's redeeming work on the cross that we're even participants in the race. Isn't that marvellous? In this race, endurance is required. We're not talking about a sprint, but the Christian life is a bit of a marathon. And as I look amongst the congregation, some of you are on your final lap. Some of you are in the middle of the race. Some of you are just starting out. The call is to race with endurance. And you know what the prize is? The prize is immeasurable. The prize is the eternal life. A glorious life in the presence of Christ. This is not a race that stops the nation, but a race that every follower of Christ is to run. And it's an eternal race. I'm going to read the text together now. So if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read this morning from uh, the New English Translation. It's not a common translation, but I particularly like the way the NET uh, translates these verses. Hebrews 12 verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race set out before us. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set out for him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame and he has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Think of him who endured such opposition against himself by sinners so that you may grow not grow weary in your souls and give up see the overall theme of the the book of hebrews is is about pressing on to maturity very similar to what we've been discussing about walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Hebrews is all about pressing on to maturity rather than falling back through disobedience and lack of faith. If you want to summarize Hebrews, that's the way you could summarize it. It's a sermon. It's not a letter like other letters. It's a sermon. It's a, we don't know who wrote it, but it's a sermon to Hebrew folks. And there's about 90 odd verses in this particular sermon that talk about not looking back, but looking forward. Today's text has reflected that. But there's another real key thing when to understand Hebrews, and I just want to draw this for you. So if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 25, because I think this helps summarize what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's just quickly read this and see if you can pick up the repeated phrase. Whenever you do Bible study, the great thing to do is look for things that are repeated. Look for phrases that are repeated because when the writer repeats phrases, they're important. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, this is Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As I've read that, what's the, the key thing that comes out there? It's the mutual encouragement to, to, and it comes in the words, let us. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider Christ and who he is. Just a little fun fact about that. When you look at the uh, original language Greek, this is called a horatory subjunctive or the vegetable subjunctive. Vegetable subjunctive? Let us? Let us? Let us? So whenever you read through Hebrews, you will see this a lot. 14 times actually. Let us. So he's exhorting the congregation, exhorting them to, to press on to maturity. That's what I want to do this morning as we, we turn to this text today. As we've read this text, the key phrase in this text is, let us run the race with endurance. Who wants to run the race with endurance? Who just wants to run? <laughs> this is the Christian life. It's a, it's a process of endurance. And the Word of God here commands us to, to think about running this race with endurance. It reflects a, a present and ongoing activity. It involves a, an active endurance involving effort and struggle. It's not a passive patience. It's an active thing. To start running anywhere, you've got to put one foot after the other, right? And after your lungs sort of collapse and you continue to run, it, it, it's a one foot after the other type thing. To run with endurance, as the, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, is a, is a metaphorical way of saying, persevere in your faith. Persevere in your faith. You see, to endure is to have the capacity to hold out or bear up under the face of, of difficulties. Who finds the Christian life difficult? Because the culture continually presses in on us to say that you don't have the truth. You don't enjoy the things we enjoy. So to run with perseverance is a, is a difficult thing. It, it could be described as having a great deal of patience, fortitude, steadfastness, perseverance. They're all good words to describe this. And in this context, it's, it's communicating clearly in endurance that is a struggle and requires effort because of the athletic metaphor. 
And so the race is like a marathon, not like a sprint. And we are to walk and run in this race. We are called to be stayers. We're called to be persevering to the end until the glorious appearing of Christ. So then the natural question is, well, how do we run this race? How do we run this race? And thankfully these verses tell us, gives us three ways. One negative example and two positive ways. So let's look at those together. Firstly, we're going to look at the negative one. So what's the negative example here? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, this is the negative. We must get rid of every weight and sin that clings so closely. If you want to run a race of endurance, you've got to deal with the issue of sin. You see, this writer is using this athletic metaphor to describe a race of endurance. And athletes in ancient Rome would compete in an arena much like we see in the Olympics or in the Commonwealth Games. They'd have an amphitheatre and they'd have a running track down there and they'd compete there. So if you were an athlete, you would, you would come out to the starting blocks and you'd be draped in robes, splendid robes. Now, before the starter's gun, do you think they would choose to run in those robes? No. So they would remove the robes. They remove these long, flowing, colourful robes prior to the race and strip down to next to nothing and then complete in the race or compete in the race. You see, while they're running, they, they did not want to be impeded by anything. They wanted to be free to run. They definitely didn't want to be impeded by a long, flowing robe. They wanted nothing to hinder their progress and here the writer is instructing us as believers, the believers here and to the book of Hebrews and believers to you and I he's using the athletic metaphor of stripping away the robes and the things that cling to you you can understand how a robe clings right, if you try and run and the robe's clinging to you, what are you going to do you're going to end up on your face it's going to trip you up he's using this metaphor to explain a spiritual principle. And he instructs the believer to run the race unhindered. Unhindered by what? Unhindered by sin that so easily clings. So easily entangles. So easily comes close to us and trips us up. He's telling the believer and exhorting the believer in the same way as he as the athlete, throw off, get rid of the robes for the race. So the Christian, the follower of Christ, is to throw off the things that hinder the race. It's a really interesting word where we say we must get rid of every weight and sin that clings so closely. That's a unique word in the New Testament. Actually, it's a unique word in all of Greek literature. It's the only time we can find a, this word being used. And 
to get rid of has this, this, they believe, this emphasis of being controlled tightly by something. And that works well with the context, right? If you're controlled by sin, you're not running well. You're being hindered. And I guess the natural application from this text is what hinders you? What hinders me? What is the thing that you cling to? What's the thing that ensnares you? What's the thing that obstructs your race? Is it doubt? Is it anxiety? Is it an addiction to pornography? Is it an addiction to materialism? All those things will hinder you in the race. You see, I've been doing a little reading recently from the, the Puritan era. Jonathan Edwards, some of these wonderful Puritans. Very challenging. Very challenging. So these old Puritans would say this. You have to hate sin with a holy hatred and run from the sin. You have to hate sin with a holy hatred and run from sin. That's challenging, right? And this is confrontational. So I'll ask again, what sins are hindering you from running the race? Because it is very clear from this passage, you can only run well when you set aside sin. But you know the wonderful thing? Is that we have a loving Saviour who hears our call of repentance every day and enables us through His Spirit to walk and keep in step with the Spirit. See, John Bunyan said this, that sin comes in two ways, through the eye gate and through the ear gate. Funny way of saying through the eyes and ears, but that's the way he said it. And this is typified in 1 John. If you read 1 John 2.15 through to 17, it says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. That outlines completely and utterly the strategy of the devil. Completely and utterly. He has always used this three-pronged approach for tripping up and enticing in sin. Did you get the three things? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You think about Eve in the garden when she was tempted. What were the three things that were said to her? They all revolved around these things. And it's the same. History doesn't change. This is the devil's 
strategy. He wants to increase the desires of the flesh so you take your, you move away from the things of God. He wants you to covet after the things that you see, materialism, lust of the eyes and the pride of life, taking enormous pride in what you do and who you are. You can see this everywhere. These are things that, that, that trip people up left, right and centre. These are things that entrap and enslave mankind. So the clear instruction here is you must get rid of these things. So as believers to run this race of endurance we must consistently deal with sin that enslaves and entraps. And as I said before you can only do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have so many instructions in the New Testament to walk by the Spirit to keep in step with the Spirit. This is where the rubber hits the road. As Christians, there's only, there's only two things, right? You're either walking by the Spirit or walking by the flesh. Don't walk by the flesh. Don't let it entrap you and ensnare you and enslave you. Now the writer instructs in a positive manner. He gives two positive examples here. The first one is that he talks contextually. You're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's a positive affirmation of how to run the race with endurance. And the witnesses here refer directly back to chapter 11. What's chapter 11 of Hebrews? It's the great hall of faith, right? It's a great hall of faith. And they are the witnesses that he's referring to. Since then we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. We're surrounded by those that are mentioned there. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. The people of Israel. Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets. That's your hall of faith. And yet it's incredibly interesting when you look at the Hall of Faith, they are ordinary people. Incredibly ordinary people empowered by extraordinary God. Do you know much about um, Jephthah? you know much about Jephthah? He's a, he's a judge in the middle of the book of Judges. He's the guy that goes and makes a terrible vow to God he's the guy that says whatever comes out of my door I will worship I will sacrifice to Yahweh what came out of his door after the battle his daughter and yet he's described as a great man of faith why? because he trusted Yahweh he had one poor incident yes but overall Yahweh used him you see a cloud of witnesses here in this context is is there to help us understand that people have walked the race before us in the New Testament a witness is never merely a, a passive spectator but an active participant uh 
and you can see actually at the end of Roman, uh, Hebrews 11, you've got this from verse 35 to 38, an account of those who are martyred and persecuted for the faith. So that is an active part of, of walking the faith, right? And I think he draws that conclusion quite well and on purpose. Now I think the emphasis here on Hebrews 12 is, um, is what we as Christians see in the host of witnesses. So it's what we see, what we, we see and understand about all those that have gone before. That's the important emphasis rather than what they see in us. I don't buy the, the fact that, that this verse is actually talking about an amphitheatre where all these witnesses are looking in on our race. I think it's the other way around. We're, we're looking at their race, what they have done before, and we take great encouragement from that. If F. Bruce says this, the context rules out the, the thought of spectators in the amphitheatre who watch the contemporary Christian race and instead speaks of God's testimony to the heroes of faith in the pages of the Old Testament. We can benefit every time we open God's word to see these great people of faith, men and women, and we can testify to the, the, the valid nature and the vitality in their faith as they exert themselves in the race of endurance. So as fellow runners, look to those who have run well. Look to those who have walked well. Model them as they have modelled Christ. That's a good thing to do, according to this passage. And there's a second positive way. So you look to the witness of others. The negative way is you put off the thing that so easily entangles. And thirdly, you fix, or keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. To keep your eyes fixed on something, especially in this context, is a focused attention. It's a sense in that you're not going to look at anything else. It's like the horse with the blinkers on, right? When the horse has a blinkers on, it, it, it can only see the winning post. And this has this sense here. Keep your eyes on Jesus. If you want to run well, keep focused Direct your attention there without any distraction. And then it says, but why should we fix our eyes on Jesus? We're in a Christian community, we should be able to answer that question, right? Why should we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? Well, it tells us here three ways why. Why? Because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Do you remember seeing that in, in Ephesians when we discussed Ephesians chapter 2? It is God who has made us alive in Christ. And it is God who has prepared for us works for us to walk in. Same principle here. Because he is the author and perfecter of our faith, he is with us completely through the race. I think we forget that sometimes. 
So fix your eyes on him. Secondly, Jesus himself endured the race. He endured the race by going to the cross. In Hebrews, this is the only reference to cross. You realize that? The entire book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12 verse 2, it's the only reference to the cross. And we're talking about the completed work of the cross. We're talking about what God has provided to us through Christ. The cross may mean many things to many people, but to you and I who follow Christ, the cross means that God's wrath is satisfied. And for the one who places their faith and trust in this fact, you are reconciled, you are redeemed, you are justified, you are forgiven. You have a union with Christ that cannot be explained at times, but you are in him. You're a recipient of the new birth. You're regenerated. And you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Does that not shake you to to the core? To realise what Christ has done for us? He endured the race. He went to the cross so that he could make us alive in him. And thirdly, why should our eyes be fixed on Jesus? Because he's victorious. Where is Christ now? According to these verses, he's seated at the right hand, enthroned and exalted next to God. It's a permanent state. Go back to Hebrews 1 and you see it there. It's an incredible statement. After the purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. No more atonement is necessary. Because he's enthroned and exalted. You see, Jesus, unlike the heroes of faith mentioned in chapter 11, is able to strengthen you. He's able to allow his followers to endure because he is the one who sits at the right hand of God. He is exalted above all thrones, dominions and powers. We read that in Ephesians. And you know what? He waits for us, for those of us who love him, to cry out and seek his help to endure in the race. Christ has been there. He's endured. And through his Holy Spirit, he enables us to run the race of endurance. So as we look at those first two verses, you see that, that faith is portrayed in these verses as casting aside all hindrances and running with perseverance. To run such a race, we fix our eyes on the goal. We fasten our eye on the prize. Jesus is the goal on which we fix our eyes. But he's much more than this. He is also the champion. He is the victor. He has run the race before. The cross didn't deter him from running the race and gaining victory because he set his eye on the joy that could only be attained by enduring the shameful cross. I can't get that concept in my head. 
For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Doesn't sound like a joyful experience to me. But to him who is infinitely greater and merciful and loving than we can ever imagine, he describes the place of shame as a place of joy. So for us to obtain victory, for us to run the race with endurance, we must fix our eyes on Jesus as the immeasurable prize. When you fix your eyes, that will sustain you. When you fix your eyes on him, it will help you through the difficult stretches of the race. As marathons say, when they run New York, there's a place when they run the marathon in New York called Heartbreak Hill. Right? It's about, what's the marathon? 26 miles, something like that? I think it's about the 22 mile mark. There's this gradual climb and they say most races at that point in time either pull out and do not complete the race because of this climb. Folks, you may be experiencing a Heartbreak Hill in your lives. Look to Jesus. Get rid of the, the sin that's entangling and snaring you. Because he is the one that's won the victory and he will enable you to win the victory. Then the writer concludes in verse 3 with a command. So he said, run the race with endurance and this is the way you run. You, you get rid of the sin that entangles. You think about the witnesses of the past take encouragement from their race but primarily look to Jesus because he's the one that's won the victory and he will sustain you to win the victory and then he ends with a command consider him who endured such opposition against himself by sinners and then the result of the command so that you may grow, not grow weary in your souls and give up to consider here in this context is described as a process of really serious thinking where you weigh up a matter with utmost care uh, through comparison, reflection and conclusion. It's similar to when you buy a new car. I won't embarrass you and say who's bought a new car recently, but normally when you buy a new car, you go and you consider all the options, right? You might have a, 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 an option list of maybe five or six cars. If you're wise, you'll go and read all the reviews. You'll, you'll find out what the fuel economy is like. You'll find out what the maintenance schedule is like. You will consider, you will, you will reason, you'll, you'll make comparisons between different vehicles and then you'll make a choice. That's what consider means here. Consider Jesus. Consider Him. Weigh up what he has done. Weigh up that he is the, the victor. Weigh up it, the fact that he has given you his spirit to run this race of endurance. Consider how he has endured opposition by sinners. If you think you're having opposition, consider what Jesus endured. Take hope from that. Consideration should be a thing of encouragement so that our souls do not give up and they do not grow weary even though the race is long. So as 
we reflect on our time together and I'm just thinking over the last 11 weeks. My encouragement to you is twofold. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling and run the race of endurance. And as we run and as we walk, fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. The more we understand what God has done for us, as we've talked about, that's the indicative. The more we understand about what God has done for us through Christ, the greater our endurance will be, the greater our love will be, the greater our victory over certain trials will be because we're focusing on Him. Christ empowers us through His Holy Spirit to run with perseverance, to walk with understanding, to walk in love and unity, to walk in the light of the Lord, to walk in wisdom and to run the race, fixing our eyes on Him.